Um, let's uh, read together Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. Well, for the last week or two, we were looking at how the author of Hebrews is Uh, admonishing us as the people of God to be careful how we listen to the word because we have an example uh, set for us in the history of Israel. Uh, The children of Israel, you'll remember, were delivered out of Egypt uh, by a strong right hand of the Lord and brought through the Red Sea, but they began to murmur and complain Uh, against the Lord. They began to give themselves to idolatry. Uh, You have the sins of Peor, uh, where they um, got involved with unbelieving uh, Moabite women and and other things. And so the the last of it was when they heard of the great uh, height of the people in the land of Canaan that they refused to go in. And with that, the Lord pronounced a judgment against that generation, saying, you're going to stay in the wilderness. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that we as Christians today need also to be warned of the same danger if we don't persevere in our own faith. And so the book of Hebrews is very concerned about this subject of Christian perseverance. Now, we believe, of course, that yes, if one is truly born of the Spirit from above, you will uh, persevere. Uh, But nevertheless, the Scriptures come alongside us, much like a shepherd does with his sheep, to uh, admonish us and encourage us to, to that very act of persevering. So yes, it is God who preserves us, but we also Uh, must persevere. And how do we persevere? Well, one of the ways that we persevere is through the means of grace. And so here today, we're going to talk about the scriptures and the role that the scriptures play in our lives in the uh, issue of perseverance. And I want to show us two main points today uh, from our text. The first is that the author of Hebrews says that the Bible is powerful. The Bible is powerful. Indeed, the author of Hebrews tells us that it is a spiritual weapon. And then secondly, that God uses the word to search us as the people of God. God uses the word to search us. And so we're going to look at those two thoughts today 
as we think together about this perseverance. Now, the author is warning us of the great privilege we have as Christians of hearing the word of God. It is a tremendous blessing to believe the Bible and to hear the Bible and to be in the vicinity of the Bible. This has not always been the case, even for the people of God. Many times they had a hard time getting access to the scriptures, even the reading of the scriptures, much less the preaching of it. But it is a great privilege, but it is also, our author would tell us, a great responsibility. It's a great responsibility for us to be careful how we listen to the reading and, to use the language of the confession and catechisms, but especially the preaching of God's word. Now, boys and girls, you young people here today, I want you to appreciate the great privilege. Now, I know for many of you children, this is all you've known your whole life, that every Sunday since you were an infant coming to church, you have had the opportunity to listen to the reading of the Bible and the preaching of the Bible. And you've had privileges likewise at home with family worship. Uh, You have grown up this way. You need to understand, though, that with this great privilege that you have comes great responsibility as well. That is, the Lord wants us to hear with ears that can hear. That is, we are to be careful that we listen attentively to the Bible as God gives us ability. Now, it's not always sin when children struggle. I want to make that clear for parents. We, may, we want to make the distinction between sin and creatureliness, okay? They, 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 are, they have a great responsibility, but they have the responsibility as a four-year-old, not as a 30-year-old, okay? And so we want to make that clear. But nevertheless, we do want you to understand that all of us have this responsibility to listen closely to the Bible. Well, why is that? Well, because this is not just the words of men that we're dealing with here. When we read the Bible, when we hear the Bible preached, we are dealing with holy things. And God would not have us trifle with that which is holy. What does that mean, holy? It means that it's set apart. That's why you're the, the cover of your Bible says holy Bible. It is a word uh, that is sacred. It is a word that is different than all the other books in the world. Now, Israel, when they were in the wilderness, they heard the word of God. That's what the author is telling us. They heard the word of God. Sometimes they heard it audibly, like at Sinai. But then other times they heard the word of God as it was delivered through the prophet Moses. And yet, what the author of Hebrews is warning us is that even though they heard and had those privileges that none of the other nations had, they did not hear with faith. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them did not take advantage of the privileges they had. And the Bible says that this is very dangerous. It puts us in a precarious position. This is why, for example, Jesus condemned the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin. He said, because they had all the advantages of hearing the preaching of Jesus Christ. And Jesus made it clear to them, because of their unbelief, 
that there would be people in the day of judgment who didn't have these privileges or who had far fewer privileges who would stand up and condemn them for their unbelief. And that's why, for example, Jesus says that the queen of Sheba would rise up in the day of judgment and condemn these cities in Galilee. Because she did what? She traveled all the way with her retinue from Arabia to go and hear the wisdom of King Solomon, and yet someone far greater than Solomon was standing in the midst of these Galilean cities preaching the word of God to them. In fact, Jesus is the word of God in the flesh. And so uh, this is why uh, we, Jesus said that the men of Nineveh, you remember the town of Nineveh? Nineveh is not a, a town in Israel. Nineveh is in a foreign land. And yet Jonah went to Nineveh and preached to them over a period of of several days. And they repented at the hearing of Jonah's preaching. And Jesus said that that generation of Ninevites would stand up and condemn the Galilean cities that heard Jesus Christ because they, even though they had someone far greater than Jonah in their midst, they were not applying faith to that which was preached. Now you say, well, pastor, we can't be held that accountable because you're not Jesus. (laughs) Well, it's true. I'm not Jesus. But guess what? You have more privileges than anybody who heard Jesus with their own ears. And why is that? Because when Jesus preached, Jesus had the Spirit upon him but the Spirit had not yet been poured out. You have been given the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has been poured out at Pentecost. So I actually preach at a greater advantage than Jesus preached, even though I am far less than Jesus. The reason Peter gets more converts on the day of Pentecost in a single sermon than Jesus probably ever got in a single sermon is not because Peter is greater than Jesus but it's because Jesus gave Peter the Spirit, and not only Peter, but he gave the congregation, the audience, the Spirit of God. So all that to say that the privileges have increased since the death and resurrection of our Savior. They are not lessened. A lot of people think, oh, well, if I had just seen the miracles, if I had just heard Jesus, if I had just been a witness to Jesus in Jesus' day, I would have been more uh, likely to be a a faithful Christian. But that's to get it backwards. Uh, It is because Christ has undergone the death and resurrection uh, that he has. He has given the Spirit to us, and the Spirit is the one who brings the Word with power. So, all that to say, to children, teenagers, adults alike, we are sitting under a greater responsibility than anyone who has ever gone before us since the time of Christ's resurrection. We have have been given the most privileges, and therefore, to whom much is given, much is expected, much is required. So Israel heard the gospel in types and shadows, but they did not believe, and so the author of Hebrews is saying that you and I must take care Now, the first thing that he says is, number one, is that because the word is sort of dangerous. The word is kind of dangerous. He compares the word to a weapon. Now, many of you 
uh, boys and girls, your parents have already maybe exposed you to weapons, to guns, and you've gone out with mom or dad and into the field or to the firing range, and your parents have begun to teach you how to responsibly handle guns and what to do, what not to do. You know, we don't, um, you know, just swing the gun in any direction. We always treat it as though it's loaded, but the first thing you do is you make sure that it's unloaded and etc. And we go through great pains to train our young people how to responsibly handle firearms. Why do we do that? Well, because they're so dangerous. And, and we want them to exercise prudence and care when dealing with these things. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is you need to realize that the Bible is in some ways dangerous. Now, I'm not saying that so that you would be afraid to uh, 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 use your Bible and to read your Bible. That would be a mistake. But, but that you are to recognize this is something more than common. And therefore, we should treat with respect the scriptures, just as we would treat a firearm with great respect, recognizing its, its potential. Uh, it's, it can be potentially used for great good, but great harm and evil. And so we need to take care how we use a firearm. We'll look at verse 12 in your scripture. For the word of God is a living and active and sharper, excuse me, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible is being compared to a weapon, a sword. Now, they didn't have guns like we do. They had bows and arrows and things, but... But the primary weapon here would have been the sword. And this is a two-edged sword. This is not just a sword where one edge is sharp and the other is uh, dulled, but there both sides of the sword are very sharp. And notice here, so sharp, though, it doesn't do uh, a, a piercing of the body, but notice here, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. What does that mean? piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Now, many times, the New Testament will use soul and spirit interchangeably. So sometimes, and, and we, we do not have a tripartite view of man, meaning that there's a spirit and a soul and a body. We believe there's a body and a spirit. But sometimes the apostle will use soul and spirit interchangeably, but sometimes they'll use it with distinction. And some commentators believe that the soul refers to the affections, that the Bible uh, can pierce the affections, so that the men on, on the day of Pentecost are grieved. They're cut to the quick, we're told, in the old King James. Those of you who grew up on the King James, you remember that? Uh, they were cut to the quick. They, they were pierced within by the preaching of Peter, so that they, uh, their affections were moved, they were grieved that they had participated in the killing of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the putting of the Son of God to the cross. And the division of the soul and the spirit speaks also not just to the affections, but then also commentators will say to the mind. So the, the idea here is, that the sword of God's word can pierce the affections and the intellect, the mind, 
of an individual, can pierce uh, their own uh, false pride in themselves and, if you will, cut them uh, to the quick in that way. And then it goes on of both joints and marrow. Here it it pierces uh, even the toughest parts of people, the joint and the marrow. What's marrow, boys and girls? Marrow is that which is within the bone. So the, the sword can penetrate. The word of God is powerful enough to penetrate the deepest parts of man or woman or a boy or a girl. It even goes so far as to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jeremiah, of course, in chapter 17, asked the famous question, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? Remember that? Well, the answer is, of course, God can know it. And the word of God can search it out and pierce those things about ourselves that maybe are even undiscovered to ourselves. Many times Christians have experienced, they come to Christ and, and they're persuaded of Christ as Lord and Savior and they believe on him. And then a couple years go by and what happens? They come under a deep conviction of sin and it almost feels like maybe I wasn't really a Christian before, they say. And what's going on there? Well, it's not that you weren't really a Christian in the previous years. What's happening is the sword. God is bringing the sword of his word to new depths in your life. And, and, it, and you are being undone by that word. And, and so you feel as though may, maybe I'm not a Christian. And it's not that you are not a Christian. But God is, being, is pleased here to bring you down. And and he is searching deeper into your motives and into your heart than he's ever done before. And you're beginning to realize more about your own depravity than you ever realized when you first came to Christ. He's using the word to bring you to greater maturation. You know, the good news about growing in grace is that you, you, over time, will sin less. Uh, But the bad news is that though you sin less, uh, you feel worse about the sins that you do commit. (laughs) And there is a pain that comes with growth in grace. So the Bible is a divine weapon. It's a spiritual weapon here. And, and if we are to persevere in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, then we need to allow the word, the sword, to do its work in our lives. It doesn't always feel good sitting under the word, but it's not always supposed to feel good. I remember when I was an intern in uh, Maryland at Knox Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and there was a woman who complained to the session, why is there so much preaching about sin? And one of the elders of that congregation said, we have the answer for that problem. The reason there's so much preaching about sin is because we are also preaching Christ who is the answer for that problem. So why does the author of Hebrews move from a call to perseverance to the subject of the Bible? Well, there is a connection here. And the connection is that in the Old Covenant, many who heard the word did not profit from it. And if you are to persevere, unlike the people in the wilderness who died in the wilderness, then you need to realize that this word is powerful. This is not an idle 
word for you. We have to have a healthy respect for the scriptures. So let me make some applications here. And I do want to note, let me just as a side say, um, just so you know, John Owen, if I read him correctly, actually thinks that verse 12 may speak not just to the word of God, but may to Christ himself here. Uh, because sometimes the apostles did speak of Christ as the word of God, such as John in his prologue, and John does it in the book of Revelation. So keep that in your mind as well. But I'm following more John Calvin here than John Owen uh, by emphasizing that, yes, behind the word is Christ, uh, but that Christ is using the Bible, the means. That is my take uh, on verse 12 here. But having said that, let me bring it to some applications uh, from this first point. Number one, let's take care how we listen to the Bible. Now, because we have done this so regularly, some of you have done it your whole life since you were raised in the church, it may seem that uh, this is very ordinary and common, but we really should remind ourselves today that this is a great responsibility. We need to really listen closely to the Bible. Um, and I say that too, that no matter who the preacher is, remember that there, there will be occasions where we will have men who are training for the ministry. And we should not necessarily expect them to be as developed in gifts as those who have been doing it for a few decades. But nevertheless, we're not there to listen primarily to a man and, and judge and evaluate his giftedness. We're there to listen to the word. And so even if there is not uh, as much in terms of homiletical skill, we are to look beyond that as a church to listen to what God would have us hear in the word that is being preached. Amen. Remember, even the Apostle Paul seemingly was not as an animated um, a preacher as Apollos. And this, you know, created some division. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I like Apollos. He's better. He's more dynamic. He's exciting. Paul, yeah, he's smarter, but he's a little drier, you know? That kind of thing. Well, we're supposed to listen uh, in such a way not to say, you know, I'm of this camp and, you know, over this guy, but rather, what is the word that's being preached? What would God have for me to hear in this? So take care how you listen, number one. Number two, that we listen with faith. This is not just an ordinary school lesson, and that's not to minimize school lessons. But here, God is asking you to listen not only with attentiveness, but to listen with faith, to believe that which you are hearing. What is it that Satan did with our first parents? He sought to undermine their confidence in the word of God. Has God really said? Is that not the question of the serpent? Has God really said? He was seeking to undermine Adam and Eve's commitment and confidence to the scriptures. And so as we come, we must recognize that we come not sitting in judgment 
of the Word of God, but sitting under it. That's true for the preacher as well as for the congregation. We are not here to evaluate God's Word versus Satan's Word. We are sitting under God's Word so that Satan's Word has no room within us. This is what Jesus himself did in the temptations. How does Jesus answer Satan in the three temptations? Jesus answers the same way each time, though the temptation was different. He says, it is written. It is written. It is written. And so he submits himself to the word himself so that Satan would have no room to work in his own life. So listen with faith. That is, we are to listen uh, with believing on Christ, uh, believing that this is his word. So many people go wrong because they approach the Bible as they would approach a bug or a frog that they're dissecting. And this is where so many go wrong, I think, in college. Uh, They sit under teachers and professors who look at the Bible that way. And they begin to undermine the commitment of many people who have grown up in the church. Some professors take pride in this, actually. uh, To undermine the, the faith of those who sit in their classroom. We are to sit under that word, believing it to be the word of God. Uh, Everybody has to begin with certain presuppositions. Everybody, none of us can sit in a position of complete neutrality. We're not capable of that. Um, Everybody has to have first principles in their life. Don't think that you're the exception. And, and, and this is where so many go wrong. They think, well, I can be my own judge. And they're making a mistake. One mistake is how little they actually know compared to all that is to be known. And then they're also making the mistake because from that perspective, they're saying, well, I, I, I am not a sinner. Or my sin is not so great that it would distort the way the word comes to me. And see, what faith does is faith says, I'm a sinner. I need help. I need grace to hear this word rightly. I can't sit in judgment of it, but I must receive it because without it, there is no hope for me. And and I know we can talk about apologetics and and the whole circular reasoning and all that, but, but everybody has to start somewhere. And we as Christians are saying, this is our starting point. You see, it's not that the non-believer doesn't have a starting point. Their starting point there is self-referential. It's themselves. I think, therefore, I am. What is the Christian saying? The Christian is saying, God's word, and I believe it. That's our starting point, is the Bible. And everybody has to start somewhere. So don't, don't let them, don't let those professors, young people, bamboozle you into saying, oh, you're just involved in circular reasoning. That you're, you know, you're saying that the Bible is the Word of God because you believe the Bible is the Word of God. Listen, they are also engaged in circular reasoning. It's their circle is more vicious than yours because it starts with themselves and it ends with themselves. Yours starts with God and His Word and comes around to you. So listen with faith. Number three, that we listen, and this is a... a Uh, correlates with the previous one, but listen with reverence. Uh, We listen so as to worship. 
we are listening not just to uh, improve our minds and to grow our intellect, but we want to worship God and serve God better. Um, the worship service is dialogical. We come, we bring praise to God, and we pray to the Lord. And then the Lord speaks to us through the word, and what do we do in response? We come in faith and we eat that word at the sacrament and then we praise the Lord again. And then God speaks to us in the benediction and sends us home. We are, we are to listen so that we would revere the Lord, believe the Lord, love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number four, uh, that we would listen with prayer and preparation, says the catechism. That as we come to the preaching of God's word, we would do so with prayer and preparation. It doesn't have to be uh, you know, extensive. The, the Puritans were, were very good. They tried to carve out time on Saturday nights uh, where they would set aside um, their ordinary business in order to prepare themselves for going to the house of the Lord the next day. Uh, the, the Puritans used to say it's easier to warm a loaf of bread than to cook it from scratch. And so they would give themselves to prayer and preparation so that they would get more out of the sermon on the Lord's Day. Now, sometimes providence interrupts. I realize kids throw up all night. You know, things like that happen. Um, and, you know, but God deals with us, you know, with mercy and grace in those situations. But ordinarily, we should try to seek the Lord and ask for God's blessing on the word. I thank Tim for his prayer this past Wednesday when he prayed that God would bless us today in the hearing and the preaching. That's one of the things we should be doing on Wednesday nights, is pleading with the Lord that the Lord's day would come with power to us. Number five, that we listen with meditation and follow-up. Listen with meditation and follow-up. I think the I think sermons will profit us all better if we spend just even a few minutes, maybe Sunday afternoon or Sunday night, thinking about what we heard that day. We'll get more mileage, even if it wasn't such a fantastic sermon. Now, I know you think I never preach a clunker, but... Uh, <laughs> but they do occasionally happen. <laughs> and what do you do with the clunker? We seek to get more mileage out of it by thinking about that which we heard. We meditate on it, and we ask our children. You know, Dad says at the dinner table, well, kids, you know, what did you learn today in the sermon? What, what stood out to you today? What was the theme about? What were the main points about? What applications might come to us uh, from that word, that Follow-up and discussion will help, I think, uh, promote what the author of Hebrews is enjoining upon us here, that we be careful how to listen. And then finally, by way of application, number six, that you, you place yourself providentially as close in proximity to the word as you can. And I, and I say this with regard to especially vocational decisions that you young people will have to make in the future. God is going to call you to various vocations and places and schools and uh, work. And I would encourage you, as you evaluate your gifts and how God can best 
Uh, use your gifts for His glory, both in the church and outside, in the community at large. That you also, in that calculation, ask yourself, where can I sit under the Word the best? That is, when you, let's take college, If you're, those of you who are thinking about college that you might make as a part of your calculation, not just do I like this university and this stadium uh, that goes with it and the football team, but what kind of churches are in that town? Uh, what will I hear Sunday by Sunday for four years while I'm away? What kind of preaching is there? What kind of fellowship um, is in that church? That we think about those things, make that a part of your calculus. Now, I want to move on then, secondly, and this will be shorter, to the second part of verse 12 and verse 13. Second part of verse 12 and verse 13. Notice here that the Word of God is a living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul, spirit, of both joints and marrow. And then here, listen to this, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That is, secondly here, that God uses the scriptures and the Bible and preaching to evaluate us, to search us. To search what? Our thoughts, our motives. That's what intentions mean, our motives. To examine ourselves. Man looks at the outward estate of others, but God sees everything about us. He looks at what's within us. He looks at our inward thoughts, the dialogue that goes on within our own thoughts. He looks at our motivations. And the Word brings things to light. Many times, I'm sure, if your experience is anything like mine, that you have been wrestling with something within yourself and you're reading the Bible and suddenly, boom, the verse speaks so clearly to that with which you have been wrestling with within yourself. Or the pastor makes an application that he has no idea that you have been uh, wrestling against certain sin or temptation, and the word comes in that application, the exact word that you needed to hear. Why is that? It's not because your pastor has omniscience, but it is because God has omniscience, and God knows what we need. And the Lord will often speak through his word to address real issues in our lives. The providence of God and the Word of God go hand in hand in our sanctification. The providence of God, that is, as God works through the details of your life and my life, and the Word work together. God, that is, God puts us through things in life, and then He also brings the Word that oftentimes helps us with the very things that He knows He's been bringing us through. And all of us will always be going into new areas of life. There will always be these firsts for the believer. You know, the first time you get married, the first time you have a child, the first time you're an empty nester, the first time 
You know, you reach retirement. There are all these firsts for the Christian. And so we're always, as Christians, going through new things. And the Word of God meets us as we go through all those things in our lives. Now, I want to say this. This is important because for those of you who may not be a Christian and you're wondering about the church, you're wondering about Christianity, and, and you want to know, well, you know, you know, what is it that we, we believe and, and such? One of the things I want to communicate clearly here is that as Christians, uh, and we are very imperfect people, but one of the things that the Bible is saying here is that this Word of God is doing its best work on the inside of us. That's the most important part. You remember how Jesus condemned the externalism of the Pharisees. And he said, you guys, you are like beautiful sepulchers in the cemetery. You look all nice and whitewashed and marbled on the outside, but underneath there's just dead men's bones. And he said, you're, you're like a cup that's outwardly looks okay uh, from a distance on the shelf until you take it off the shelf and you look inside and you're like, ah, the dishwasher didn't get this done. Um, he said, what do you do? You clean the inside. And the outside will then be cleansed. He was urging us as Christians that we deal with the inside stuff. And even if nobody else can see the pride, even if nobody else knows of the internal anger because you're just of a disposition that can hide it and you can, you know, you have a more stoic personality, you still need to deal with your anger. You still need to deal with the lust. You still need to deal with the idolatry. Even if others don't detect it, you need to do that work in the inside. And you say, well, Pastor, I thought you just said it's God's work through the Word. Well, it is. But sanctification is a synergistic process. It's not monergistic. It, it, it's a combination that God's Word and grace works in us, but we must work conjointly with the grace that God gives us. That's why we have to listen with faith and apply the things that we hear into our lives if it is going to profit us. The Pharisees had the word of God and they believed in inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible, unlike the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed that it was the word of God, but it wasn't doing them any good because he wasn't allowing they weren't allowing the word to get down into the secret place of their lives. That's where the word needs to do its work, and we need to allow the word to do its work. That's why we need to repent of sins that nobody else sees or knows or hears. That's why it's not enough, says the confession, that we engage in general repentance. We need to specify the secret sins that other people don't know about. What do we see in, in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24? The psalmist says, search us and know us. See if there be what? Any wicked way within us. The psalmist is asking God to do his work through his word inside. Psalm 51 and verse 6, and we'll close with this. David, after obviously wasn't dealing with inward sin in his life, because it, inward sin has a way of 
vomiting out into outward sin. And he commits adultery with Bathsheba and he's called out on it. And as he repents in Psalm 51 verse 6, he says, you desire truth, he says, in the innermost being. And that's why we need to be careful how we listen to the word and let that word do its work internally within us. Let's pray.